Uh, my apologies, you're getting a lot of me today. Uh, we are in the book of Nehemiah. If you want to open your Bibles, uh, we're in our third week of our series in the book of Nehemiah. This morning we're going to look at chapters 3 and 4. If you're using one of the Bibles that's in the chairs, that's uh, going to be on page 399. But we're actually going to start our reading this morning on page 400. My favorite movie of all time, uh, do, you know, do you know your pastor well? Do you know who, who my, what my favorite movie of all time is? <laughs> it is not Dumb and Dumber, no. My, my favorite movie of all time is uh, Glory. Uh, and Glory is the story of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, the second regiment of all black soldiers to fight in the Civil War. In the movie, as they prepare for a full frontal assault on Fort Wagner, which is, this is a true story, this, this really happened. Uh, this is an effort that's going to undoubtedly cost many their lives. They're going to lead this assault. They would lose about 40% of their men in this battle. And, and, and in the movie, there's this scene on, on the beach. They're about to go. They're about, they're about to march into battle. Just rockets being fired at the beach. Before they even march, the rockets are being fired, and they're lined up. They're in, they're in full order. And uh, as their general walks toward the front of the line, and they cheer on their general, and he's about to make a speech, there's just this, this little moment uh, where the soldiers on the very front line, two of them, and, and one you could see is just totally scared, understandably, knowing he's probably about to march into his death. And he just he falls backwards. And right next to him, his brother grabs his shoulder and holds him up. And the general gives his speech and they march forward together. The general bravely leads them in marching into battle. We face moments in life that make us stagger. Make us wonder if we're able to go forward. Make us question if the battle is worth it. If the Lord is in it. What can cause us to stand in the fiercest of life's trials? What can give us strength when the Lord is calling us to painful faithfulness? How do we answer the accusations of our enemies? This morning we look at Nehemiah chapter 3 and 4. The people in Jerusalem begin building the wall, but they face strong opposition. They must trust in the Lord, work together, and stay vigilant. Nehemiah is going to remind the people of Israel that remembering the Lord who is great and awesome, will give them the strength to fight. We're going to keep it simple here today. We're going to consider the war and the weapons. The war and the weapons. 
Nehemiah leads the people to courageous obedience in the face of enemies on all sides. There's a link between that Zechariah 12 and what we're going to read today. My desire for us this morning is that we would know, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would know the comfort of having the Lord on your side and fighting for you. The blessing of life in community and the power to stand firm in the face of trial. I'm just going to read chapter 4 this morning. We will look at stuff in chapter 3, but I I made a decision that we're not going to read all of chapter 3 this morning. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were, we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building... If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, For the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. 
The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. It's the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, apart from your Holy Spirit, we have no understanding. We cannot apply your word to our hearts. I cannot say anything of value. I pray, Father, that my words would be faithful to your word and that you would apply it to our hearts. We thank you that you are a God who is with your people in trial. I pray, Father, that we would be challenged and encouraged by your word and reminded of the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. When chapter 2 ended, the people of Israel were strengthened. Strengthened by the word of God's mighty hand being on Nehemiah. And with the news of the king's edict that they could repair the walls. So they had this, this reminder that God had been gracious and the king was on their side. They had resolved to rebuild, even with Tobiah and Sanballat and Geshem uttering these threats against them. Uh, Chapter 3 gives us a vivid picture of the rebuilding. It starts and ends at the Sheep Gate, the place where the lambs were brought into the city to be sacrificed. It involves the entire community, which we're going to talk about a little later. We see in chapter 3 words like repaired. And beams, doors, bolts, and bars, and after him repeatedly to give us the picture of a wall coming together by the unified strength and effort of a community. However, as is often the case when the Lord is at work in a broken world, the enemy lurks nearby to try and tear the work down. The war here does not ultimately, I said the the two things this morning were the war and the weapons. The war does not ultimately become a physical war. But make no mistake about it, there's a battle going on. A constant threat, a constant terror. Tobiah and Sanballat, they appear again in chapter 4 as we just read. Sanballat is angry that the walls are coming together. Tobiah joins in the taunting and the mocking and the threatening we see in 4.7, do you have your Bibles open still? You should. We see in 4.7 a mention of the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. Do you see that there? Why is that there? Do you know why? This is our link to Zechariah chapter 12 actually. So the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites, this means that the people of Israel was, were surrounded by enemies. South, east, 
north. What's on the west? A lot of water. The Mediterranean Sea. The point was, there's nowhere for them to go. They are literally surrounded by their enemies. God had promised through the prophet Zechariah that when you are surrounded by your enemies, and even before that, and I think this is on the mind of Nehemiah in this passage, God had promised Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7, when you're surrounded by your enemies and you think there's no hope, I will be with you. And so this is in here to say these people are surrounded by their enemies. They're pinned in. And they had the letter from the king saying that they could rebuild, right? That's encouraging. Nehemiah had reminded them that God was with them, right? That's encouraging. But what happens in your life when the trouble feels near and the the help seems far? The king was 900 miles away. Their enemies were standing in front of their face. I'm sure we can resonate that with that, right? When trouble feels near and help feels far. Look at the words and actions of the enemies of Israel. They do not want this wall to be built. They do not want Jerusalem to be fortified. Nehemiah had said to them at the end of chapter 2, you have no portion, no right, and no claim in Jerusalem. They thought they did. And they had a vested interest in a weak and defenseless Jerusalem. So the king's support for Israel meant that these enemies had no ground to stand on, but that's not going to stop them from trying. What do we hear them saying and see them doing? We saw in chapter 2 that these same men had uh, threatened to report to the king, right? They had threatened to go to the king and say, look, these people are going to rebel against you. That's why they want to rebuild this city. They're trying to rebel. Here in the beginning of chapter 4, Samballot is angry, greatly enraged, and he jeers at the Jews. And he says in the presence, do you see this here? He says in verse 2, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria. That's significant. He's trying to rabble rouse. He's trying to get a group of people together who are going to say, yeah, what are we doing? Why are we letting these people do this? So he's saying it in their presence. He's jeering them. He's saying, what are these, what are these feeble Jews doing? What are they doing? What do they think they're going to rebuild an entire city walls by themselves? They think they're going to be able to do that? They're going to make the sacrifices to do this? They're going to, what, are they going to finish it in a day? Are they going to revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish, burned stones? They're they're really going to do that? He's trying to rouse an intense crowd to go against them. He's essentially saying, does this ragtag bunch of common folk think that they're just going to get together and build a wall that actually protects a city? Come on. This is a monumental task that they're trying to do. Tobiah follows up with, yes, what they're building, what these people are capable of building, if a fox walks on top of it, it's going to fall down. In verses 7 and 8, 
As the wall is coming together, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, they're angry. They plot together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in Jerusalem. In verse 11, that they, they convince themselves that they're going to they're win this thing. They're going to surprise them and they're going to kill them. I couldn't help but see in Sanballat and Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, a picture of the way that uh, the enemy of our souls, Satan, fights against believers in Christ. Consider the heart of the taunts and accusations. Consider what they're trying to do to the people of Israel. And, And consider how this pierces our own hearts, how these attacks come to us. First one, I'm going to tell the king. How easily we fall prey to this one. Believers in Christ, we know that we are declared righteous by the grace of God through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Right? Do you know that? Our sins have been forgiven. We have been cleansed thoroughly. We are able to stand before a holy God because Jesus is our righteousness. We boast in His sacrificial death and His victorious resurrection, yet we still go to war in this flesh. And when we find that we have fallen short of His glory, again, I use this a lot, but if we think like, I don't don't know if I fall short of His glory. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Just take that one. And when we find that we have fallen short, sometimes a little voice whispers, you really think you're a Christian? Wait until the Lord hears what you've done. You can't go to Him. You cannot go to Him with this. He won't receive you. He's going to be angry at you. He won't forgive you. You're His enemy. Sometimes it sounds like this. You can't, you can't do this. You got, you, Sam Ballard, that's what he said. These people think they can do this? Man, that sounds a lot like, you can't do this. Who do you think you are? You are a pathetic excuse for whatever you claim to be. You are most certainly not able to accomplish what the Lord wants from your life. And it is up to you, by the way, to accomplish it. Only up to you. You shouldn't need help from the Lord. You should be able to do this on your own. You should be further along than this. Your efforts are feeble. This is the best you can do to glorify God? That's horrible. Why do you even try? Your efforts are going to get destroyed quickly anyway. Why bother? Why do that? Ultimately, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to fall short. You don't have enough power to fight. It's probably time to give up before things get worse for you. Just stop. 
Do any of these resonate with the things that go through your mind and heart? Not good enough. Not going to be able to carry it out to the finish. It's all up to you. God doesn't want to hear from you. These enemies sought to undermine Israel by making them afraid. Making them question their plan. Making them question their leader. Making them question their ability to execute this plan. Question their source of strength. Where's our strength coming from? And question whether they could even complete the mission. Sometimes when the battles are the fiercest, even those closest to us who are not our enemies become voices that cause doubt in our lives. We see 4.12, right? It says in 4.12, at that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said, did they say it one time? How many times? Ten times. Ten times they came to him and said, just come, please come back home. It's going to get bad. It's going to get bad here. Stop doing the work. You're in danger. Give up. Too hard. Too dangerous. I was reminded of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 21. He's on his way to Jerusalem, right? And he, he is met by a prophet who says, you know, he comes bound and he says, this is what's going to happen to the guy who owns this belt. And all the people with Paul are saying to him what? Don't go to Jerusalem. You're in danger. And what does Paul say to them? He says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. In the face of enemies, as they utter their threats and their lies, in the face of well-meaning loved ones who tell us not to take the risks or who tell us we're, we're crazy for following Jesus, crazy for trusting in Christ. How do we live as the people of God? How do we live as the people God called us to be and fulfill the mission that He's called us to complete? There's a war on the outside. There's a war on the inside. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. Maybe this is too much. Maybe it's too hard. No. The people of God need to fight back. But how? How will they fight? What weapons will they use? So let's talk about that. I see four weapons of warfare in this passage. I don't know what's happening to me, but they all start with the same letter. And I don't, I don't know if it's the influence of Ben King of, from Williamstown or Larry Lazarus. I don't know what it is, but they all start with the same letter. So I have weapons, and I've got war and weapons, and now I've got four C's for you. Four weapons uh, that, that will strengthen the people of Israel and strengthen us who trust in Christ. They're not going to physical battle here, though they are ready if necessary. They will take up weapons of vigilance, weapons of spiritual battle. They, like us, battle not primarily against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
they will take the fight to their enemies with their commander, their community, their communion, and their confidence. Uh, They will be short points. Their commander. Who would be their commander? Well, the Lord ultimately, yes, but that'll be our confidence. Nehemiah is the leader of this project. And here we see him acting as almost a military general. Chapter 2 ended with him staring down the opponents. They're, they're, it's like a stare down. John Challer, I think we were talking about this. You, you, you can make a great movie out of the book of Nehemiah. And, and uh, maybe, the, maybe it exists. If you know about it, tell me about it. But maybe we'll just make it afterwards. Uh, <laughs> Nehemiah stares down the enemies of Israel and says, we're building this wall. In chapter 4, we see him representing the people in prayer, going before God, who is his confidence, which we'll get to. We see Nehemiah protecting his people. When there's threats, he gathers them together so there'll be security in numbers. We see him giving a rousing speech to strengthen their hearts, right? 4.14, that would be the climax of that movie we would make in the book about the book of Nehemiah, right? That he's saying to them, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And then, as their commander, he also, does Nehemiah give this speech and then head back to Susa? No, he does not. No, he does not. He works alongside of them night and day. He doesn't excuse himself from the work. He doesn't say, you know, that's kind of beneath me. I actually serve the king as his cupbearer. I can't do this work on the wall. He's there with them. He doesn't bail out when it gets tough. He doesn't say, no night shifts for me. He says, I led the people in not taking our clothes off. Meaning, we didn't stop. Night and day until the work was done. Leaders are vital to the success of a mission. In the church, the need is for leaders who display godly courage, boldness, humility, protective care, willingness to share in the labor, and ultimately dependence upon the Lord. Nehemiah displays all of this here. And the people respond. So the second C, the second weapon I see in this passage is community. This is not a Nehemiah project. That is very clear in these chapters. This is a community effort. The community builds together as we see in chapter 3. Painstaking detail is given to who built where. Oftentimes, people just, it was like, here's my house, I walk across the street, I'm going to build that portion of the wall. The wall is coming together, piece by piece, household by household. You see, uh, the priests build right where their sacrifices are going to be brought in. People of all walks of life built. We see nobles. There's a ton of high-ranking officials mentioned throughout chapter 3. Did you read this week? If you didn't read this week, I would encourage you, read, read in advance. 
Next week, you only got to read 19 verses in seven days. You can do it. In chapter 3, we see over and over these nobles, people of high rank, people, ruler of half the city of Jerusalem, ruler, building the wall. It wasn't beneath them, which is why it might be noted in 3.5. Maybe you notice that it says, uh, next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Maybe as you read that, you thought, like, why is that in there? What was it to take a shot at the, the, these people? It's noteworthy because everybody else was willing to. And these people were not. These nobles of the Tekoites, uh, though the Tekoites themselves are mentioned twice as faithful builders. We see goldsmiths and perfumers and priests and temple servants, men and women. Certainly there were skilled and unskilled laborers and they did it together. I mentioned earlier the repetition of after Him or next to Him in chapter 3. Over and over and over. Shoulder to shoulder. Side by side they built. And later in chapter 4, shoulder to shoulder. Side by side they would stand guard. Together. One hand on the tool of building. Did you see that in the passage that we read? One hand's on their tool. Their one hand are building a wall. Where's their other hand? On their weapon. We are called to build and to fight together too. Keeping watch day and night. Carrying out the mission of God in this world is meant to be an us thing. Not a me thing. Scripture gives us vivid imagery, not of a collection of individuals, but a people of God. Bought by the blood of Jesus, united by the Holy Spirit, we are to be a city on a hill. We are to be a body with many parts. We are to be the branches of the vine. We are a people for His own possession. We are by and large, Americans. And we love me. We like all the me stuff. All the individualism. All the I don't need anybody else. We're all about that. My life. I'm the captain of my ship. I sink or swim based on me. And the truth is, we need each other. We are weaker when we are alone. The person who says, I, I can be a Christian without the church, folly. Folly. We are weaker when we are alone. The church is meant to display the glory of God together. The church declares the Gospel of Jesus Christ to a needy world together. The church stands strong against the tides of society and the attacks of the enemy together. Self-sufficient is not a biblical term. We need each other. You are weaker when you don't invest in the people of God. And we are weaker when you don't invest in the people of God. Whether you see it or not, 
whether you feel it or not, it's really important, okay? To say, like, you can stand up there and tell me, oh, yeah, the body needs me. I don't feel that way. May I say, frankly, it doesn't matter how you feel because the Bible says it's true that the body is weaker when all the parts of the body are not serving together, even if you don't feel it? May I say to the person who says, I really don't actually need the church. I can just live my Christian life and walk out my Christian faith by myself. That is also not true. That's folly. And even if you say in response to that, well, that's not how I feel, it doesn't matter how you feel. Because God's Word says that we are meant to walk this out in community. He is building a people for Himself. That's His work. We are, I, I, I do, I have time. I, I just think there's something really cool in here. Nehemiah chapter 4 the, the taunt of Sam Ballad. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones? Isn't that an interesting phrase? Are stones alive? Are stones generally alive? No, stones are not alive. But reviving the stones sounds like giving life to the stones, doesn't it? And that the stones once had life. In verse 7 of chapter 4, it says uh, that there was, they were hearing of the repairing of the walls. And that word repairing in the original language is also speaks of healing. Healing the walls of Jerusalem. And so the, the taunt is like, what are you going to bring the stones back to life? What are you going to heal the walls of Jerusalem? Like this living thing is being brought back to life as the wall is being built around Jerusalem. And I thought that that brought new meaning and fresh I don't know, excitement over 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Maybe you're familiar with these verses about the body of Christ. Where am I? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to Him, Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? That there's a pointer in there that, that the people of Israel are going to make these stones live again as a pointer to the Lord who builds His spiritual house on the living stone, Jesus Christ. And he builds us like spiritual stones atop that foundation. He brings life. He revives rubbish. Right? That's what they say. These stones are rubble. You're going to make these stones live again? How many of us resonate with that? 
who could make these stones live again? Right? How is that possible? They say, not only are the stones crumbling, they're burnt. They're destroyed. They're useless. But God has raised the dead, taken out the heart of stone, given a heart of flesh, built us together as living stones. Sorry, I, I hope that was helpful. I, I, just, I thought that was so cool to see that in, in the, this passage. All right, third C, communion. Specifically communion with God. So there, there, is, there is the commander, there is the community, but there is also the communion with God. Like I said last week, I love when I quote myself in a sermon. Uh, there's time for prayer and there's time for action, but make no mistake about it, even in a time of action, if the good hand of God is not upon us, we have no hope of success. And so here, Nehemiah vividly shows us his dependence upon communion with God. In verse 4 of chapter 4, he prays to God, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders." He seeks the Lord's judgment on these people. Doesn't that seem harsh? Well, think of it along the lines of maybe David and Goliath. David was provoked because Goliath taunted the armies of who? The living God. And here, similarly, Nehemiah is saying, do you see how they're taunting you, Lord? Hold them accountable for their taunts. Nehemiah is indignant because God's name and God's people are being dishonored. It's right for us to feel indignant when God's name is dishonored. It's right for us to want justice served when God's name is dishonored. It's also right for us to acknowledge at the same exact time that apart from God's mercy, we would be on the wrong side of justice too. In all of this, Nehemiah is entrusting judgment to the king, to Lord Almighty. In 4.9, we see Nehemiah with both prayer and action. It says, we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. One does not preclude the other. We can be a people of prayer and action at the same time. How does the Lord keep and protect us through prayer? He reminds us of what is true. He reminds us that He is with us. He reminds us that He is our protector. He reminds us that He hears our prayer requests. He allows us to leave the heavy lifting to Him. That He would do what only He can do. Prayer strengthens the people of God in the knowledge that while we act, He must be in it. We can do everything. Unless he's in it, we got no hope. Which brings me to our final point. The confidence of the people of Israel. And specifically the confidence of Nehemiah on behalf of the people of Israel. Where is their confidence? 
Never once do you get the impression that Nehemiah or Israel is saying, we've got this. But quite often, throughout this whole book, you hear them and see them saying, God's got this. Our God has this. The words of Nehemiah in 4.14, again, I already read them to you a couple times, they are a bold call to courage based on God's faithfulness. Certainly, he has in his mind what I referenced from Deuteronomy 7 or, or from the book of Joshua where the Lord reminds his people repeatedly, be courageous, be courageous. I will fight for you. I will fight for you. Don't worry when your enemies surround you. I will fight for you. Be courageous and be faithful. Here Nehemiah says to them, do not be afraid of them. Why? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Right? He who is in you is greater than he is in the world. Fight! Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your sisters, your families. Fight because the Lord is with you. Stand firm because the Lord is with you. Remember who's on our side. In verse 20, he tells the people that if they hear the sound of the trumpet, they should rally together. They were spread out during the building. But if trouble should come, they must gather together. But what would their confidence be in the day of trouble? In verse 20, our God will fight for us. What wonderful news and what wonderful hope that the Lord will fight for His people. I was reading Psalm 124 this week, right? If the Lord had not been on our side, all our enemies, they would have killed us. If the Lord had not been on our side. I'm sure I've stressed this some over the last few Sundays, but I don't think I'm in danger of stressing it too much. Nehemiah is ultimately hopeful and bold and courageous because the Lord is on his side, which sounds wonderful. But is God on your side? That's nice. I can read read a great story about another guy who had God on his side. But is he on your side? How can a person know if God is on their side in the battles they face? How can you know today that God is for you? Maybe some of you walk out of here every week thinking like, that's a great worship service for a lot of people. For me, I don't even know if any of these truths apply to me. How can you know that God is for you and with you? Where are you putting your hope for salvation? Nehemiah's trust was in the Lord. Where is your hope? What gives you strength and hope? Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. We just sung it. Is it that maybe you're going to be strong enough to win the battles and win the war? Or is your hope in the one who has already won the battle and won the war? Jesus Christ has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He has defeated the schemes of the enemy. He's defeated the lies of the enemy, even if you're struggling to believe it. For the believer in Christ, he has defeated it all. He has defeated Satan himself. He is a crushed enemy. He is a defeated enemy. 
Jesus overcame the accusations of the enemy. He defeated Satan himself. Jesus overcame the accusations when he was in the wilderness. Jesus overcame the fears and the doubts when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He died to overcome sin on the cross. He declared victory and then he defeated death itself. He calls us to trust in Him. To believe that His life, His death, and His victorious resurrection count on our behalf. That His righteousness is our righteousness. And then the Lord tells us this as we draw to a close. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Victory is ours in Christ. In Christ, the burned out rubbish is being built into living stones. In Christ, the enemy's accusations are silenced. In Christ, there is power to work for His glory and power to defeat the enemy. Israel was seeing it, and we, on the other side of the empty tomb, see it all the more clearly. Trust in Him. Let's pray.